Welcome to NASA in Silicon Valley, episode 99. This week, we're talking with two scientists, Ruth Globus and John Galaska. Ruth is the rodent research project scientist here. She advises researchers, engineers, and others on how to carry out their experiments on the International Space Station. That lets them study how gravity and other aspects of the space environment influence biological systems. John is the project scientist for NASA's Gene Lab. Gene Lab is an open science initiative gathering all kinds of data from biology experiments like these done in space and making them available to all for further study. He helps make sure that the information Gene Lab offers will be just what the scientific community needs. Now let's listen to our conversation with Ruth Globus and John Galaska. Thank you, Ruth and John, for joining me here together. Um, you guys are both project scientists advising two different projects at NASA, right, that work together. So mm -hmm. we're going to want to talk about what each of you does and then how you work together. So John, you've been on the podcast before, so people should go check out that episode. But Ruth, you're new to us. So could you tell us a little bit about how you got to be a biologist working at NASA? Sure. Um, so uh, I was recruited to come to NASA originally to uh, try to answer the question of how bone responds to the lack of weight-bearing, normal weight-bearing. This was work being mm -hmm. done by Emily Holton, um, who had worked with Russians decades ago on the, in the Cosmos missions and was one of the first to establish that, in fact, there is demonstrable bone loss in space. I see, yeah. We know that's the, the case with astronauts as well. So I came um, after uh, getting my undergraduate degree, uh, worked for a few years, and, and we learned a lot of interesting things, establishing a ground-based model to simulate weightlessness. And then I went on to graduate school and uh, was recruited back later to oh, say, cool. well, we, we want someone back here who has a cell biology interest and, and capability to answer a little, you know, ask questions uh, at a mechanistic level okay. and how, uh, how also to happening? address the basic questions. Yeah. Yeah. That's nice to be asked back. <laughs> right. Well, as a project scientist, um, so I... I talk about wearing two hats. One is I'm a research scientist. I have my own research program, and I've continued to be interested in the problem of how gravity and, and other aspects of the space environment influence uh, uh, the health of cells in bone. Mm -hmm. um, as a project scientist, I was asked to help uh, develop the capability to fly rodents uh, in space mm -hmm. and uh, on the International Space Station to begin to answer uh, questions that we've had for a long time as well. How does long duration spaceflight influence uh, the various uh, parts of the body yeah. and um, develop an understanding that will both inform uh, biologists on Earth how parts of the body, how the cells in the body uh, react to changes in loading and gravity, but also to help us figure out how can we uh, make things better for astronauts? Mm -hmm. We're looking, NASA's looking to go to very long duration, what we call exploration class missions, that is go out, go to Mars. And right. now we're going into uncharted territory with respect to understanding physiological changes and uh, biochemical changes that occur in the body 
to what extent do they stabilize and okay. how, how bad it can, may it get. So that's what long-duration rodent experimentation enables us to do. Mm-hmm. So as the project scientist, circling back to your original question, yes. as the project scientist, um, I help advise the engineers and the um, specialists who take care of the operations of doing the experiments in space. I advise them on the, on the science and, mm-hmm. and how to best uh, ensure the welfare of the animals, but also to achieve the specific science objectives of other scientists. So we have right. scientists from the commercial side uh, through cases, as well as uh, scientists through the space who are supported through the space biology program at NASA, who um, who ask a variety of different questions and have their own. Every experiment has its own demands placed right. on on how you conduct it. So that's my job as the project scientist is to help make sure that the work that gets done and the changes get made and the processes that get developed all end up achieving the desired science objectives while ensuring the welfare of the animals. Right. That's really clear. So CASIS, you mentioned, is the partner that that helps. No, CASIS is actually the lab manager for the International Space Station. So uh, their business is to to identify and recruit and support uh, commercial and non-NASA use of the Mm -hmm. space station. So CASIS uh, sponsors research uh, by uh, pharmaceutical companies. We've had um, we've had seven missions to date. We've had uh, principal investigators, that is, those right. are the lead scientists on a given experiment um, from, uh, from companies mm-hmm. like Eli Lilly and Novartis. We've also had a, a principal investigator from the Department of Defense. Okay. Uh, and um, we've also begun to support space biology program uh, investigators. Those individuals typically come from academia, mm-hmm. they also include some NASA scientists. Okay, right. So the lead scientist on any of the NASA rodent research missions could mm-hmm. be from these other institutions. It could be anyone, yeah. And they've probably never flown an experiment in space before, right? So that's where you would come in to help them get everything designed and set up correctly. Well, the whole project supports that. Mm-hmm. So my, you know, personally my function is to review the is to evaluate whether the plans that are developed to support the experiment um, do what they need to do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's sort of a simple way okay. of. of um, exactly. Now, early in the project, we devised what what's described as a validation mission. So we brought together science science experts, scientists who've flown experiments in the shuttle era and animal veterinarians uh, to develop a, the first mission in which we could um, test out the the plan, essentially. Uh, and uh, that mission had half of that mission supported a Novartis principal investigator, lead scientist, and half of it tested all of our procedures and processes. Mm-hmm. Um, we carefully monitored the animals and all that. Now, to get the, the most benefit from this mission and from subsequent mission, we collected samples from, uh, from the animals and we preserved them and uh, in such a way that subsequently 
various types of analyses and um, assays can be performed, and we can learn even more mm -hmm, about them. Mm -hmm. So we take the samples, we stored them at very cold temperatures to maintain their, their, um, their quality, and then we sent them out to different scientists around the country who, who have expertise and interest in analyzing them. And one group which received some of these sam samples was GeneLab. Um, and mm. so I'll leave it to John to, to kind of explain um, how GeneLab can further magnify uh, the benefit gained from this kind of approach. Right, exactly. That's where John comes in. Sorry, we've been ignoring you. So please <laughs> jump in here. So just as Ruth is the project scientist for rodent research, you're the project scientist for the Gene Lab project, right? That's right. So can you tell us what does that mean you do and what is Gene Lab? Yeah, at the highest level, my job is to, again, inform the engineers and all the other team members of what the requirements of the scientific community are going to be. So my primary job is to ensure that the Gene Lab product, which we'll discuss what that is, mm -hmm. Suits the needs of the scientific community. So I have a scientific, I have scientific training, I have scientific contacts, and so I can give that perspective to the rest of the team. Right. Gene Lab is a relatively new um, initiative here at, at NASA, and at its core, what we're trying to do is to drive uh, the production of more data sets and also the reuse of data sets mm -hmm. from biological experiments performed in space. And Ruth has already brought up the Rodent Research Project, and it's a great example of this. So if we again go back to this validation study that Ruth mentioned, mice were flown, PIs and teams did primary analyses on these uh, mice, and then tissues were deposited um, to a, a database or a tissue storage facility. Mm -hmm. GeneLab then was able to effectively write a proposal to access those tissues and generate more data from them. So we generated data on the transcriptome of those tissues. And the, so the transcriptome is meant to be a, a comprehensive view of the RNA profile of a cell. And our RNA is very important to how a cell okay. operates. Yeah, it's kind of what the cells are doing. It tells you that. Right. So it? it's the genome is, you can think of it as being the sort of the hard drive of the cell. And then mm -hmm. the RNA um, is produced from the genome. And that then gets converted into proteins. Proteins are doing actual chemistry. And so the R okay. RNA is an intermediate intermediary between those those two states. Yeah. And there's very nice technologies now to actually measure that RNA profile in a very precise and robust way. So we were able to do that from a number of tissues from this rodent research validation study. Um, GeneAB, one of the core values of GeneAB is that it's an open science initiative. So mm -hmm. we, we generate that data and we don't we don't even look at it. We kind of pipe it right out to the public, so anybody can go to genelab.nasa.gov mm -hmm. and download these data sets cool. and analyze them. And the idea is that we want to get as many eyes on these, as diverse a background as possible: biologists, data scientists, right. high schoolers, etc., because you don't really know where the next big discovery is going to come from. Yeah, that yeah. makes sense. And there's a lot to be discovered in there. I suspect all this data from over the years in different types of organisms, right? Right. So GeneLab has about 200 data sets now. Okay. Um, a lot of our data by volume is from these rodent research projects mm -hmm. um, because those were done recently when we can produce very large volumes of data relatively cheaply. Some of the older data sets are smaller because technology was not as advanced. Um, but we have microbe data sets, plant data sets. You can, you know, depending on your favorite organism, you can usually find something that's relevant. Uh -huh, that's fascinating. 
I think when we were chatting before, you guys talked about data being really diverse from different scientists from different eras. Is that something that you're able to help with with GeneLab? That's one of our goals. Um, the Rodent Research Project, I think one of the successes of that project um, going back and, and up to now is that they have set up a, very, a relatively consistent cadence of flights and a relatively consistent structure of flights. Um, and so it, it's really a model for um, what can be done with a consistent um, schedule and mm -hmm. design we can now start to compare different experiments. So this initial rodent research validation study, but now there's new studies coming out. And yes, the goal of GeneLab is to organize that in a way so that making a comparison between those experiments is easy. And you start to pick up patterns from all of that that you wouldn't see in a single experiment. Oh, yeah. So what he's describing is like a meta-analysis, which biomedical scientists will analyze, um, will collect the papers, the published papers from all this, all the different studies that have addressed a particular topic, and then ask, what's the preponderance of evidence for or against a particular treatment strategy, mm -hmm. or for so, something like that? What what this approach enables is a type is a meta analysis across multiple samples, but not just of the conclusions that are drawn, but of the, of the actual. Uh, detailed data, the as he described, the transcriptome, the whole, the whole picture, the whole enchilada, so that when you, in in some of the differences that we've seen, we we've had 27 uh, spaceflight experiments uh, with the original hardware on the shuttle missions, okay. and the Russians have also flown, uh, flown rodents, mice, and rats on. Uh, Cosmos, and uh, there have been multiple, the Japanese now have some missions, so there are a lot of variables having to do with cages and duration and mm -hmm. whether the animals are male or female. So all of those variables, when you can start to uh, look at the big picture, take the detailed data across multiple experiments that might have some subtle differences, you can start to look for commonalities. Mm -hmm. you know, what are the, the common uh, things? What are you likely to see? And are you seeing in both in experiments that are from animals that are both males and females so that you know any scientific conclusions you draw from your analysis aren't limited by that. You mm -hmm. can, you can, to whatever extent you can extrapolate, you know you don't have to extrapolate to the point of uh, constrain yourself to a single, uh, to only being relevant to right. female astronauts, for example. Okay, yeah. Since uh, most of our early missions, uh, uh, coincidentally, were female uh, mice, female not male, mice. Okay, and most right. of the data we have from astronauts is from male. Okay, uh, true. Uh, be, just because of the population. So that's what having this kind of uh, database where you can actually do what people in the field call mining. You can mine it. Data mining. Uh, yeah. And then you can do these uh, cross-experiment comparisons and you can try to find out what are the, not the details, but what are the important commonalities too. Okay, the bigger picture. Yeah. Yeah. Is that what you need to establish before you can start figuring out uh, you know, for astronauts on long, long missions, they should be eating this or that for better bone health. Or I don't, I don't think so. It, mm -hmm. it would be nice if it were as simple as that. Okay. I mean, it's that's kind of where you're going. Was as you build your scientific, um, I, I don't want to call it a database, your uh, framework 
of understanding how does gravity influence an or, a multicellular organism. We start there. And then when you start to learn the principles underlying that, then you can formulate testable hypotheses. And um, and that's, you know, that's what you do. Ultimately, it could culminate in yes, take this pill and you won't you'll you'll feel better in the morning uh, while right. you're on Mars. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> right. Could be our future. Yeah, it could be. <laughs> So, John, you're not a rodent researcher yourself. So how do you work together with somebody like Ruth? Or how do you begin to approach working with rodent data? Well, you listen very carefully. Uh-huh. So you, the key is to understand your limitations and understand okay. you know, what you bring and what, where you need help. And so we do try to reach out and, and ask the right questions. Uh, we have a new initiative at, at Gene Lab we call them analysis working groups. Meta analysis? Well, is that what you said? Any analysis, meta meta analysis working groups, Mm -hmm. and what these are are groups of scientists from within NASA and outside of NASA, and we have four of them now. One of them is an animal analysis working group, and so these groups are meant to look at all the Gene Lab data and to critique it to give us feedback. Okay. And that's a really critical part of the Gene Lab cycle is we're trying to produce a product that is useful and we need feedback from from scientists who are specialists in rodent research um, etc um, yeah a simple example is just the metadata that a scientist requires for interpretation of these data sets that hmm. that type of metadata metadata basically describes the conditions of an experiment okay. what's the strain what's the age of the mouse etc mm-hmm. those simple categories of metadata will be very different for a rodent research experiment than it would be for a microbial um, yes. Experiment, a plant experiment, et cetera. So we really rely on those discipline-specific scientists to give us feedback on, on what's necessary to, to right. lead to strong conclusions. Right, right. How would you know otherwise? And then if your data isn't strong, you don't want to produce it that way, right? So mm-hmm. that'll affect maybe the future design? Right. So another thing to understand about GeneLab is we don't actually do any experimental design. Okay. We effectively yeah. are, are reliant on the experiments that PIs um, like Ruth and other rodent research PIs are designing. So they're taking the lead in designing a really solid experiment, a hypothesis-driven experiment, if you will. We come in after and look at what's available from those experiments um, and try and generate the best data sets possible. Um, So in that way, a lot of the heavy lifting has been done for us already by these PIs. They've, They've designed a nice experiment that's usually been peer reviewed. Mm-hmm. and has passed that threshold of quality. Um, so there's a nice check there already for us. And then we come in and um, we feel pretty confident in our, our ability to generate and understand omics data. And so then we come in at that point and, and try and generate really useful data sets for this, the community. And the full cir- circle on that is that as scientists can access the GeneLab database and, and uh, look, uh, sort of give a really practical and um, plain explanation of it is, is look to see um, what, what pathways, what things are different in, um, say, for example, a liver or the muscle of a flight animal, mm-hmm. an animal that's been in space for 30 days versus uh, control animals that have been maintained in identical conditions on the ground. So the scientists can go look at the, the what we describe as own omics data and analyze it and then formulate hypotheses. Let's say that you find a particular, they find a particular pathway that they didn't expect to be activated. You didn't, couldn't oh, make yeah. that up in your brain. Oh, I, I expect that to be different. Mm-hmm. But in fact, they go in and look at it and it is different. Wow. We already There's already been 
um, some papers that have taken that, lots of papers in the field that have taken that approach. Now what that, the full circle part of it is they can take that result and they can then ask hypothesis-driven questions based on their analysis of that data set uh, derived from Gene Lab. Now they can design their next experiment. Mm -hmm. They can write their next grant proposal for their next flight experiment, uh, informed by what what they've learned from that data set. So it's that's kind of typically how science works, but that's yeah. how this project the projects work together, building new experiments, right. providing that data, and then PIs out there going and saying, yeah, this is really worth testing, and then convincing the funding agencies mm -hmm. to support them to actually do it. Yeah. So digging through the gene lab data can yeah. spark new ideas, new hypotheses. Yeah. Right. I know you talked about lots of different organisms data in gene lab. Can you make comparisons across organisms? Does that make any sense? The effect of microgravity on a bacterium versus a mouse? It's a difficult comparison. You know, the simple physics, the, the physics at different scales are different. And so what the effect of a, a lack of a gravity field on a microbe is going to be very different from on a mouse. Um, that said, you, you, I mean, we're all related, right? Mm -hmm. So a lot of, if you look through the tree of life and you look at the tree of gene families in the tree of life, there are relationships. You can find that a gene in a mouse is related to a gene in a plant. And, uh, right. and so you can start yeah. to piece that together. Mm -hmm. I think the further out you get from a, a concentrated study, the more careful you need to be. Right. Um, it's certainly a very intriguing idea, and it's possible. You just need to be really be a bit careful when you really try and take a big picture look like that. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, yeah, I was curious about that. So also GeneLab has quite a lot of data in it, uh, but do you describe it as big data? Which is kind of you know a popular word these days. Yeah, is it in I was that category? thinking about this on the way over after lunch, and my answer today is, is yes. It, uh -huh. I think it is. Uh, you know, big data. It's maybe not what people think of in Silicon Valley. Um, we don't have training sets. Um, I think the the typical example is you have two sets of pictures some with cats and some without cats, and then you can train a, an algorithm on that to then be able to detect cats. Okay. We don't yeah. have anything like that. We don't have, we've talked about trying to set up a consistent cadence of rodent research experiments in space, but we're nowhere near the millions of examples that you would need to start to do that type of, of mining. Okay. That said, our database, I think it's up to 20 terabytes, wow. and it's big. Um, it's not as big as some databases, but there's challenges associated with simply moving data. So if somebody wants to analyze this data, downloading it is a barrier. So in mm -hmm. that in that essence, it's big data. We need to use specific algorithms to, to analyze it. The primary data is essentially nonsensical. There's a lot of steps that need to be done to refine it into something that the human mind can actually conceptualize. Um, so there's a lot of themes of big data that do apply to ours, okay. um, mm -hmm. but it's, it's a little divergent as well. Yeah. All right. Well, that's what makes the challenge interesting for mm -hmm. you, right? <laughs> Working on these. So 20 terabytes of data, potentially all available, accessible for people to dig through and invent new ideas and questions to answer, all leading towards what? What would you say would be the goal of Gene Lab's data or ultimately in your work, Ruth? For me, it is supporting exploration. I mean, I think that in the space biology program um, is ultimately meant to support exploration. So we, we use model organisms to understand how biology responds to space. The next step is to translate that to the human body. 
now you understand how the better how the human body is responding to space. That allows you to design better, safer missions, more effective missions um, to put humans out into space. There's also an argument that what we're doing in space is going to have direct relevance here on Earth. Mm-hmm, um, that's true too. So Ruth mentioned Eli Lilly already, and I think that there's going to be interest from pharmaceutical companies to mine this data. The unloading of bones in microgravity is similar uh, mm-hmm. to disuse here on Earth. And okay. so there's a lot of, I think, interest there to understand how those things may connect and what types of discoveries may come out of it. You know, I think our primary mission is to support NASA's goals, but we really do hope that a lot of different discoveries will come out of this data set. Yeah, so, I mean, it's that's well said. And I think that... Um, I would only expand a little bit on that to, in terms of rodent research to say that you know, rodents are a very uh, commonly used model for, yeah. uh, for biomedical research. And we understand a lot about them. We have a lot of tools developed mm-hmm. that, um, that we can use to relate to humans. So it's, it's a mistake to say a result obtained in a mouse is, is definitely going to be obtained in a human. But it's, it's definitely rodents have been sort of the st- really standard way to approach biomedical problems. So we're able to gain insight not just into, not only, I won't say just, not only into into um, uh, mechanisms and um, the extent of the, assessing the extent of health risk, but also to test uh, ways to intervene. Mm-hmm. So uh, that could be using, uh, using a drug or uh, changing the genetic makeup of an animal to understand the contribution of a specific gene okay. uh, to a biomedical process. So, um, so I think that's um, I think that's the particular relevance of rodent research versus some of the other types of organisms. Although I think I think you you do get, gain great value from from looking at flies and, mm-hmm. and others. Yeah, uh, depends in space. what you're looking for. Right? Uh, I think for the biomedical relevance. Mm. Right now, um, rodents is the as close as we can get. One of the questions that we can get asked as we were working with rodents is, you know, how do you make the decisions you make, and how is that? How do you ensure welfare of the animals? Right. So we have what's called an uh, institutional animal care and use committee. Every institution that does uh, research with animals has one, and uh, we are we are um, we and all scientists who who work with um, animals are subject to uh, to regulations uh, related to ensuring that the experiments we do are consistent with high high standards for animal welfare mm-hmm. and health, and. Um, that ensures the quality of our science as well. So we Both. have uh, NASA has a dedicated flight. The abbreviation is IACUC, uh, has a flight IACUC and an a, attending veterinarian who monitors every experiment, who who examines video from the animals and and monitors handling of the animals uh, to ensure that they meet those health mm-hmm. and welfare standards. And that helps us ensure high quality science right. outcome. That's a good point to make, right? What was that you pointed out to me once about um, space flight kind of flips the the usual order of things when we often have rodent research first before a human oh experience. oh I was just making it was it kind of amuses me that mm. that most of the research that we do on Earth or the biomedical research 
Um, you, you really, uh, people uh, conduct the experiments with animal models, with rodents and other animals before they go to humans. And that's a safety thing. Uh, and that's actually a requirement and it's highly, you know, highly regulated. So before uh, humans are given a medication, it has been tested in a minimum of two species. That's the current FDA standards and, there's, and it's well understood. And the animal models have been developed uh, for disease states and so that allows the, these biomedical testing. But we, we've gone to space, we've, we certainly have sent a lot of animals, but uh, what we know about the biomedical consequences of spaceflight uh, are predominantly from studying, studying humans, astronauts. Right. Right, right. Um, we've done a lot of short-term studies. I mentioned them in the shuttle era with rodents, but uh, long-duration studies have only been done in humans. Uh, yeah. So no rodents have been up there for a year uh, or even six months. Uh, That's the longest really rodents have been up there uh, is three months. And we learn a lot. We learn a lot by with rodents because their lifespan is shorter than humans, and they acquire a lot of the same age-related diseases mm-hmm. that we get. They get they can get cancer. They get uh, osteoporosis. They get mm. uh, muscle wasting, sarcopenia with age-related muscle wasting. Uh, even their fur turns gray. Wow. So they have a lot of age-related diseases, but that all happens in a two-year period instead of an 80-year period, which is how long it takes us to age. Right. Uh, so we're able to, shorter periods in the rodent's life uh, can be used to extrapolate to longer durations on exploration class missions um, for, in terms of the potential for health risk to the astronaut. Right, so that'll help us understand a lot faster what could happen to human explorers. Yes, that's our goal. Yeah, so I think we're working towards that. Um, One of the things we haven't talked about is a lot that the platform for this research right now is the International Space Station. Right. And we can learn a lot about exposure of astronauts to microgravity on the ISS. And one of the big steps for NASA now is moving outside of low Earth orbit. So the International Mm -hmm. Space Station operates in low Earth orbit. And what that means is it's still um, protected from cosmic radiation. Okay. So the, once we move outside of the protective magnetic field of, of Earth into deep space, which would be required to move to Mars, um, there's a lot of questions about how systems are going to respond, biological systems that can respond to that exposure. Um, right, it's a whole other ball game, right? Right, and so that's again when we think about future rodent experiments. You know, how how would a mouse respond to these radiation fields? And knowing that should allow us to you know provide better protections and de- mission designs for for astronauts. So it really is all about exploration. Awesome. Well, that's all the time we have for today. So if you have any questions out there, we are at NASA Ames on social media, and we're using the hashtag NASA Silicon Valley. So send us your questions and comments and we'll get them to Ruth and John and get back to you with an answer. Thanks for coming over, you guys. This has been really interesting. Thank you. Thank Thank you. you. You've been listening to the NASA in Silicon Valley podcast. Remember, we are a NASA podcast, but we are not the only NASA podcast. So don't forget to check out our friends at Houston. We have a podcast. There's also Gravity Assist, This Week at NASA. And if you're a music fan, don't forget to check out Third Rock Radio. The best way to capture all the content is to subscribe to our omnibus RSS feed called NASA Casts, or visit the NASA app on iOS, Android, or anywhere you find your apps. 